Today on Hearing is Believing. So God gives His people a ministry of prayer, not only to assure us as we live, but to hasten the day, to hasten the day. Legislation reveals the heart of the authorities, but God uses the prayers of His people to turn the tides towards His gospel purposes. Connecting contemporary culture to the timeless truths of God's Word. This is Hearing is Believing. And a phrase we often hear these days is a phrase called religious liberty. Religious liberty as Americans. When we oftentimes think of religious liberty, we think of uh, what we'll soon celebrate. And that is at Thanksgiving, what do we celebrate? We celebrate the pilgrims. And those pilgrims, of course, were desiring to have the free exercise of religion. And so they fled England. Specifically, they fled the Church of England to freely exercise religion. And so if your frame of reference, and I'm speaking to an American audience here this evening, if your frame of reference for religious liberty only goes back to the beginning of the colonization of America, and what I hope to do this evening is take you back to the Christian, listen, the Christian, not American roots of religious liberty. And so to do that, we have to remember how Christianity started. And so for those of you who know me, you know that I am a um, historical theologian in training. I love church history. But consider how Christianity started. Christianity was not like Judaism. Judaism uh, and Judaism had ancestry that they could point to. Christians did not. Who founded Christianity? Well, from the perspective of the pagans, the founder of Christianity was Jesus Christ. And so the Christians, they believed, and rightly so, that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. He was the long-expected Messiah of the Old Testament. What did the Jews do? They rejected Christian teaching. And so what did that mean? That meant that the Christians, they were the new kids on the block. And as such, they experienced none of the benefits of the toleration that the Jews enjoyed in the Roman Empire. Instead, Christians were persecuted. The reason they were persecuted is because they did not participate in the cult of the emperor. The Christian message was consistently this, Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. And because of that, Christians were persecuted. And oftentimes their persecution was violent. And as a result of that, during that turbulent time of violent persecution, a group of Christian thinkers called apologists began to increase. And so their ambition was not to necessarily give an apology for Christianity, like we think of saying, I'm sorry. Their ambition was to answer some of the questions about the Christians and how we believe and how we behave. For example, early on, Christians were thought to be cannibals. Why did they think that we were cannibals? Well, because we participated in the Lord's Supper. And the nomenclature or the words that we used was we were eating the flesh of Christ and drinking His blood. And so from a pagan perspective particularly a Roman perspective, who were not barbarians by any means. They were Romans, civilized. They thought that Christians were cannibals. 
And also, they, uh, they charged the Christians with polygamy, as well as with incest. And the reason they also were charged with uh, the Christians as they accused us of having orgy parties. Why did they do that? Because Christians referred to their wives as sister. They referred to their husbands as brother. And they often greeted one another with a holy kiss. And they were seen going in to rooms together, staying, and then coming out later. And so the, the accusation was, oh, these people are incestuous. Christians, uh, they also were accused of being atheist. Believe it or not, the Romans accused the Christians of being atheists. Why? Because we rejected the pantheon of the Roman Greek and the Roman and the Greek gods. And so if we don't believe in the Roman gods, if we don't believe in the Greek gods, then we must be atheists. These Christians were persecuted for these reasons and for many more that we could name. But the point that I'm trying to make to you this evening is Christians were seen as deplorables. They were seen as no benefit to the forward progress of society. And so in that environment, God raised up some of the best thinkers that the church has ever seen to plea, to give a reason for the Christians. Listen carefully. Christians were the first to advocate for religious freedom. Specifically, a man by the name of Tertullian. It's not Tertullian, I know. If you look at the way that it's spelled, it's Tertullian. But anyway, Christians were the first to advocate for religious freedom. And that guy, Tertullian, he was born in the year 106. So we're talking about very early on. So what is religious freedom? Well, one of my favorite authors, I've referenced him before to this group, is Robert Louis Wilkin. Here's what he says about religious freedom. And this is not all there is to religious freedom, but this at least provides a foundation. Religious freedom rests on a simple truth. Religious faith is an inward disposition of the mind and heart, and for that reason cannot be coerced by external forces. Religious freedom rests on a simple truth. Religious faith is an inward disposition of the mind and heart, and for that reason cannot be coerced by external forces. And then Lewis Wilkin goes on to cite Tertullian, and he says this, It is only just, it is only just and a privilege inherent in human nature that every person should be able to worship According to his own convictions, the religious practice of one person neither harms nor helps another. It is not part of religion to coerce religious practice, for it is by choice, not coercion, that we should be led to religion. And that type of attitude did not exist, at least not in print form that we're aware of, before Tertullian. Now, oftentimes people confuse religious liberty with tolerance. Tolerance is forbearance of that which is not approved, a political policy of restraint toward those whose belief and practices are objectionable. Religious freedom, on the other hand, is grounded in the idea, listen to this carefully, in uh, the idea of a natural right that belongs to all human beings not an accommodation granted by the authorities. 
So one, tolerance, is an accommodation. The other is recognized as, listen to this language, an inalienable right endowed by the Creator. So freedom is more than toleration. And the earliest of Christian thinkers knew the difference. And they advocated for that difference to be realized in a hostile world, the hostile world of Rome. Now, some of you are already wondering, what on earth does that have to do with the book of Timothy? Were they right, these Christian thinkers, were they right to think in those terms? In our passage tonight, listen carefully. You're going to love this. At least I hope you will. Our passage tonight demonstrates the gospel importance of religious liberty, religious freedom. The passage tonight in 1 Timothy chapter 1, go ahead and turn, chapter 2, go ahead and turn over there, 1 Timothy chapter 2. I hope that the passages that we have before us tonight are going to challenge the way that we often think about the phrase religious liberty. And there again, I want us to think in terms of our Christian foundation of religious liberty. And when we say our Christian foundation, surely the, uh, the tides of history, that idea that began in Tertullian, that's found its way in Galerius, that finally found its way in Constantine, that finally found its way to the pilgrims, that finally found its way into the Constitution of the United States, it had its beginnings in principles of Scripture. And so that's what I hope to challenge your thoughts of what we mean when we hear the phrase religious liberty. So listen to the Bible, 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to read the first eight, seven verses this evening. Hear the word of our Lord. First of all then, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Amen. Would you pray with me? Help us during this time, O oh Lord, to correctly learn from your word. Help us, we pray, in the power of the Spirit, in the name of the Son, to the glory of the Father. Amen. So that's probably a pretty familiar passage to you, if I'm guessing. Pray for those in authority. We use that passage often. We think about what happened in our recent events. We think about what's going on during this election cycle. And we think about, hey, pray for those in authority. This is something that we're used to hearing. But we come to this text, and I'm afraid that we often stop short at the first verse. The first few phrases of the first verse, 
without understanding the passage in its context. And that's not a good thing. Because if we don't understand the passage in its context, then we hijack the text, and then we read meaning into the text. That's called eisegesis. And instead, we desire to read the meaning of the text, and that's called exegesis. One you read into, iso. One you bring truth out of, ex, ex, you bring it out of the text, exegetically. And so we're commanded to pray for those who are in authority, but why? And what exactly are we praying for? And so it's my hope tonight during this moment that we have together to make those matters clear as we look at this text. And this text, listen, is calling us to keep our focus on the mission of God. That's what this text is about. Is it about praying for people? Sure. Is it about other things? Sure. But the main motivation of praying for other people is it's all couched in the mission of God. So we're in our series on Wednesday nights, and this is the fourth part of our, the fourth principle of our series. Remember, our series is called Safe to Shore, and we're looking at 12 principles to keep your faith off the rocks. And this principle, I believe, comes to us very timely today. Tonight, there's a debate. So it's very timely that we consider this. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 8 is about more than praying. This passage, listen, focuses on the mission of God. So it answers a couple of questions. It answers how we focus on the mission of God, and the way that we focus is prayer. Interesting. The way that we focus is prayer. The first thing that God calls us to do is pray. But then it, it also not only answers how we focus, but it also answers what it is that we pray for and why we pray. So it focuses on the mission. How? Through prayer. Well, then what do we pray for? And then why do we pray? And so we're going to go through each of these points together. So number one, if you're taking notes, focus on the mission of God. Number one, focus on the mission of God. Remember the context. Remember this. And I know it's been a little while. We went, as we started this series, we looked at 18 through 20, and then we went back to the surrounding context. But remember the context. After the introduction in the first 17 verses comes this warning. And this warning is don't be like Hymenaeus and Alexander. Don't be like those guys. Those guys, they made shipwreck of their faith. Whatever they did, don't do that. And so after this warning, we enter a new section of our study in Timothy. But the main idea of this section that we're looking at now is going to be found in chapter 3. Go there for just a minute. Look at chapter 3 and look at verse 14 through 15. So we're entering into this new section after the uh, warning. And the thesis or the main idea of this section that we're entering into now is at chapter 3. Look at verse 14. I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. You say, how do you know that that's a different section in the book? Well, look, for example, look at chapter 2. Look at how it begins. 
First of all, then. Do you see that word then? That then is our clue to let us know that he's changing, he's changing his uh, direction. And then look at chapter 4. Now. That now there is another connector to let us know that Paul's changing in his argumentation. And so the section that we're entering from chapter 2 goes from chapter 2 all the way through chapter 3. And so listen, he, what he's writing for is how one ought to behave in the house of God. And that's important because in Scripture, believers are always in life together. If you remember, one of the reasons that Hymenaeus and Alexander made shipwreck of their faith was because they despised the community together. They tried to live this, perhaps they tried to live this life of faith outside of church, and it's just impossible. And so in the Scripture, believers are always in life together. The church, and that is what I mean by the church, is the gathered, Spirit-filled congregation. Listen to this statement. The church, the gathered, Spirit-filled congregation, is God's plan to accomplish His mission. We, together, are God's plan to accomplish His mission. I don't know how that strikes you, but it strikes me a little strange. This is God's plan to accomplish His mission? And then Paul would say, with everything that the church does, the answer to that is absolutely yes. And so look, for example, even in the warning of chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. There's church language. Look at, verse, uh, look at verse 18. Paul reminds Timothy of his ordination. That's something that's done in the church. And then look at verse 20. Paul says this strange thing. He's handed them over to Satan. What's he referring to there? He's referring to church discipline, casting them out of the church, handing them over to Satan. So church discipline, according to Matthew chapter 18, is an event when the body is gathered together. And keep this in mind. Listen, this is important as we move forward. The principles that are laid out in chapters 2 and chapters 3, they're more than occasional. You say, what do you mean occasional? They're more for, for just those people at those times. These principles are for the church in every age. And we're going to say more about this next week because we're going to come to what is going to be perhaps a very difficult passage for some. And that's 1 Timothy 2.12, and I'll just read it for you. Uh, 11 and 12. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. We'll look at that next week, all right? Today has enough trouble on its own. So let's return back to the passage at hand. So the instructions that Paul is giving first concerns prayer. Prayer is the way that we focus on the mission of God. You can learn a lot about a church from listening to the way that they pray. Furthermore, you can learn much from listening to the way the leaders of the church pray about the condition of the church. 
Now listen to me carefully. Don't, don't take those comments in a legalistic sense. Those comments are intended to edify, not to crucify. And that's why a lot of individuals don't like out loud praying because you think, oh my goodness, somebody's going to get to see about... Don't take it that way. That's not my intention. Though, like I said, they're intended to edify and not crucify. Though, let me say this. If the crucifixion of your flesh and my flesh is what's hindering us from praying, then take those comments as you will because they stand true. And I'm not the judge of how we pray. God's the judge. He knows our hearts. But you can learn a lot about the focus of a church if you listen to the way that they, the leaders and the people, pray. And you say, well, that's hard. Well, I think I'm on solid ground when I say those things. Because when Jesus teaches prayer in Matthew chapter 6, you know how he begins teaching on prayer? He begins teaching with prayer with the word beware. Beware. How many lessons have you heard on prayer that begin with beware? It's usually pray. You better pray. What's wrong with you for not praying? But Jesus begins his discourse on prayer with the word beware. Prayer is extremely important because our praying, listen, reveals the substance of our faith. You know, some of the best praying that I think I've ever done is when I was just silent. And that's okay. We should take prayer seriously because prayer reveals the substance of our faith, but prayer is intended to focus our attention on God and His ways, not God to let us have our ways outside of Him. As if he's simply trying to, uh, or as, as if we're simply trying to get him to serve our needs. You know, he's, a, he's the little God that we keep in our pockets, and we take him out every now and then, and we rub this little thing, and we say, Lord, give me this, help me this. That's not what prayer's about. Go back to Matthew 6, for example, maybe in your mind, uh, as opposed to just turning over there. Matthew chapter 6, consider the Lord's prayer. Consider the, the way that Jesus taught us to pray. What did he say? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then what did he say? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then what? Then give us this day our daily bread. You see the difference? Praying the way that God teaches us to pray focuses all of our attention on the mission of God. You say, well, what on earth is the mission of God? The mission of God is what we pray for. So number two, we pray for all people. Look at these connectors in the text. Verse, chapter, uh, chapter 2 and verse 1. Prayer, intercession, and thanksgivings be made for all people. And then we get specific, verse 2, for kings and all who are in high places. And then look at this in chapter, and verse 4, God who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And then verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all 
Those alls there are are, are, uh, perfect because they connect the passage together. And then look at what Paul says here. He says, for this reason, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Why was he appointed a teacher for the Gentiles? Because God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And so what's the mission of God? He's given us a ministry. And the ministry that he's given us to accomplish his mission is praying. And we are to be, listen to this language, non-discriminatory in our prayer life. Non-discriminatory in our praying. We pray for all people. Listen, even those who persecute us, even those who spitefully use us, even those who abuse us. Look at this. When Paul says, pray in verse 2 for kings, you know who the king was when Paul was writing this letter? Who was he? He was Nero. The emperor Nero. Now, if you don't know anything about Nero, let me tell you a little bit about Nero. The story goes is that Nero accidentally caught Rome on fire. And so you know who he blamed as his scapegoats? The Christians. Nero used to, was famous for his nighttime parties that he called his circus. And at these circuses, the luminaries for his party was the body of Christians. And he tied to a post, erect into the air, and then set them on fire for all of his guests to watch. Nero was a fierce persecutor of the Christians. It was under Nero that Paul was beheaded and lost his life. And Paul says, pray for all people. Peter would say the same thing. During that reign of of Nero, pray for this emperor. But after Nero came Domitian, then Trajan, then Marcus Aurelius, then Decius, then Valerian. And then came the most fierce of them all, a man by the name of Diocletian. And Christians are commanded to pray for them all. In one of his letters, Tertullian, he said this, When we meet together, we offer prayer to God for the emperor and for all of those who are in authority and for the public good. In our gatherings, we read sacred writings that nourish our faith and exhort one another to live virtuously. And then Robert Louis Wilkin, he says of the Diocletian's persecution, I love this, listen to what he says. Diocletian's persecution went on for several years, but it could not be sustained. Christians were too numerous their communities too cohesive and their leaders too adroit to be done in by the sword. 
by forcing a choice between Rome and Christ, the emperor badly misjudged the doughtiness and resiliency of the church. And in 306, Diocletian abdicated and he handed over authority to another, a man by the name of Galerius. What did Galerius do? He loosened the grip of persecution. He allowed the Christians to gather on two conditions. First, behave decently. (laughs) And second, he asked the Christians to pray to their God for our safety and that of the state so that from every side the commonwealth may be kept unharmed. But what Galerius didn't understand about the Christians is the substance of their praying. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But before we do, take notice of these words, these three words that direct our praying. All of these terms, notice, All of them are plural. What does a plural mean? It indicates the frequency of our praying. Paul wants us to continually pray. Billy Graham was one time asked by a a group, what does it mean to pray without ceasing? And Billy Graham answered, the whole time you've been asking me the question, I've been praying. (laughs) So what does it mean? So, So in other words, the idea is that we're supposed to continually have this posture of praying. So he says supplications. What is supplications? That's asking God to meet specific needs. And then intercessions. What are intercessions? Those are urgent and bold appeals for divine, divine action on the behalf of others. And then thanksgiving of all things. During persecution, thanksgivings. Well, when you thank God, you recognize that God is sovereign and He is in control of all things. And each of these, each of those three is a challenge when considering the persecutions that the Christians were prone to face. And each of those is intended to laser guide our focus so that we can pray towards God and His purposes and not our own. And so what is the substance of our praying? Point number three this evening. We pray for the mission of God to advance. Galerius. Go back to Galerius. What did he do? Interestingly, what have the Christians been doing the whole time? Praying. But the Romans couldn't stand the Christians. They were persecuting the Christians. And Tertullian and others were saying, hey, just let us live. Just What harm are we going to do? Time and time again, Athenagoras of Athens would come and he would say, what harm are we doing? We come together, we care for each other, we bury the dead, we care for the poor, we rescue the babies that are aborted out of the trash cans. We're doing all this good. What harm are we doing? And Galerius comes and he says, I'll let you worship on two conditions. Number one, behave decently. And number two, pray. Galerius 
asked the Christians to pray for the welfare of the state. But the Christians responded and they said, we will pray for the advancement of the state in our terms. And when we say that we're praying for the advancement of the state, we're praying for renewal. We're praying for revival. We're praying for a movement of the Holy Spirit all through the empire. That what is done in the darkness will be brought to light. And here's the part that we often miss understanding this verse. Those in authority should carefully consider when they ask the Christians to pray. Because Christians, we only know one way to pray. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. And so listen, our praying for authorities is not for their ends so much as it is for our ends. You say, well, what is our end? Well, it's spelled out in verses 3 through 6. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men and man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. So what is our end? Our end is the glory of God in all things. And so why do we pray? Look at this. Don't miss the that in verse 2. He says, look at verse 1. I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, comma, for kings and all who are in high positions. That, your Bible may say, so that. Why are we praying for those in high places? Here's the point. That, that, we may lead a peaceful, quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So we're, you, see the, you see the progression? We're praying for other people so that we can live a life unhindered for Jesus. We're praying to be left alone. We talk about the separation of church and state. That's, I'm a Baptist. I believe in the separation of church and state, but that's not for the state. That's for us. Because we don't want the state to come in and tell us what to do, what to say, how to do. However, it doesn't mean that we can't have any influence on the state. It means that we don't want the state to have any influence over us. We want the free exercise of religion. Why? So that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of our God who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We pray so that the gospel ministry can go unhindered by those in authority. We pray for favorable circumstances and conditions for continued gospel proclamation. This is what we mean when we say religious liberty. We desire, listen, conditions to be favorable for the spread of the gospel, not freedom from affliction. Consider the persecution of Paul. When Paul was Saul and he was persecuting the church, the church was dispersed. And so the gospel spread. Consider Tertullian, again, 
who said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Consider our contemporary position. Consider China and the persecution on the rise and the Christianity that rises with the persecution. And there are over 44 million Christians in China counting. 44 million and counting. And so our focus is the mission of God. And we pray for its advancement because God's desire is for all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Jesus is the one mediator who gave himself a ransom for all. And that's why we pray. God has given us a great and mysterious ministry called prayer. I've told this story in other places, but I don't think I've told it here. I remember as a young boy praying one night, or dreaming, I was dreaming, dreaming that I was praying. And here I am, I'm, you know, in dream perspective, I'm looking at myself by my bed praying. And then all of a sudden I remember Satan entered the room in my dream, but it wasn't a nightmare, but Satan entered my dream. And he looked at me and he said, you think you're doing any good? You're just talking to the sheets. And in my dream, I looked at Satan and I said, Satan, if that's true, then why on earth are you here bothering me? This mysterious thing that we do called praying. When we get together, we fold our hands, we bow our knees, and we pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He's given us this great and mysterious ministry called prayer. And listen to this. If you hear nothing else tonight, hear this. Legislation or courts, they do not direct the affairs of this world. Listen to me. All they can do is merely cast a shadow. The saints of God who pray, you and I, we know better. We know Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. So God gives His people a ministry of prayer, not only to assure us as we live, but to hasten the day, to hasten the day. Legislation reveals the heart of the authorities. But God uses the prayers of His people to turn the tides towards His gospel purposes. God's ear is towards His people. And He commands us to pray for the world to turn towards Him. God, turn the world towards Yourself. We place all of our hope, all of our confidence in You. Father, help us to focus on the mission of God and to begin with prayer. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, 
Amen. You're listening to Hearing is Believing. For more information or to contact us, please visit hearingisbelieving.org.